This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by our super supportive patrons. You can join them over at patreon.com slash the tome show. Welcome to the Tome Book Club for April of 2021. The Tome is a D&D news reviews and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in full full book club style. That is a tricky phrase to say. Uh, And our book this time around is The Ship of the Dead by Rick Riordan, which gives you a sense of just what we mean when we say D&D-related, because it is not, but kind of is. And with us, as always, is Eric Paquette. Hello, bonjour. Bonjour. Next episode, which we'll record towards the end of June, we'll be reading Dragon of Spring Dawning by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, because we are focused on finishing some of the series we started over the years. And before we get started, I want to say thank you to all of our Tome Show patrons. You are the way that I pay the Tome Show bills, and that helps keep it going. Uh, that helps me convince my wife to allow me to take the time to do this and, and, and uh, what have you, because it is a it is a hobby of mine that basically pays for itself at this point. Uh, if you want to join those patrons, even for a dollar a month, you can head over to patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Now on to the book. We have read The Ship of the Dead by Rick Riordan. It is book three of the Magnus Chase series in the Riordiverse. Full of toenails. <laughs> Full of toenails, yes. Um, As is per legend of the ship. <laughs> yeah, Nogglefar Nog- or whatever it was called, right? So this is this is book three. We followed Magnus Chase through two books. Um, he, it's if you know Rick Riordan stories with the Percy Jackson and, and that kind of stuff. Or Percy's probably the most famous. Um, it very much is is Percy Jackson, but with Norse mythology, right? It's you know he's he's the Magnus Chase is the son of a Norse god and dies and goes to Valhalla where he hangs out with a bunch of other um, children of Norse gods and they become the Inheriar that will fight the battle of Ragnarok when the time com- when the world comes to an end uh, and so far we've seen them stop Ragnarok by rebinding Fenris Wolf uh, and then in book two um, unsurprisingly if you're familiar with Rick Riordan's sort of formula um Ragnarok is threatened again and Loki escapes and is going to start Ragnarok. And then this book is Loki starts Ragnarok when he sets sail in his ship made out of, was it fingernail clippings, toenail clippings, both? I don't know. Nail clippings, a boat made out of nail clippings. Um, The ship of the dead. And when it sets sail, when the ice melts in the summer then that's when Ragnarok begins. And so they need to go and recapture Loki before the ice melts and the ship sets sail. Did I miss anything? That's pretty much the whole book, right? That's all. (laughs) Done. I had a a quick question, though, because you did mention the pattern of Mm. uh, Riordan's writing. 
Uh, and, and like we talked about it a little bit each episode. But it seems to fit Norse mythology well. Sure. I mean, yeah. in fairness, it fits a lot of mythology and a lot of storytelling. Like it's not an un it's not an uncommon it's not like he picked his own formula that's different than all other storytelling and, and just does it over and over again. Um, I just I I have found in the past reading his books that that he he leans on it heavily enough that it becomes a little bit predictable. Um, but that's fine too. That I still enjoy the ride. So yeah. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I grew up reading a lot of, like, Greek and Roman myths, and you do get some of that sort of, like, everything's going to go to heck, but not always to the same way mm. that I feel like you get it in Norse mythology. Yeah, well, and, and yeah, I mean, Norse mythology, from, I mean, most of my experience in Norse mythology is either from the Neil Gaiman book that we read or or the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Um so, so that's most of my familiar with Norse mythology. So, it, but it does seem to lean on that pretty heavily uh, as as a thing. In, and the world's almost time. always about ready to end, right? Well, and it's right. Well, and that's the <laughs> thing about Ragnarok, right? Is that you can't stop it; you can just delay it. And so they're constantly just delaying it. Uh, and it's, I mean, I mean, it's not really that different than like this is the formula that the original Star Wars trilogy follows too, right? Uh, everything's going to go horrible and then you stop it and then you don't, and then you stop it again. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fairly common formula. Yeah. So, yeah. So anyway, um, this, this, in this story, they start off knowing that this is what they have to do. It's a, it leaves off on the cliffhanger from the previous, uh, book where they know the bad guy's gotten away and now you've got to go stop him from starting the end of the world yeah odin had given them a task to go and well at least um what's her name uh samira. yes samira sam she she she's given a task by odin to basically capture loki <laughs> right which i don't know that's fine to be, you know, it's it's part of, you know, heroic storytelling to be given a quest or whatever. But at the same time, like, I kind of got the impression they were all going to go do that anyway. They didn't really need Ode to tell them to go. They they were planning on, because they feel some responsibility because they were there when he was freed. Do they really need Odin? I mean, he doesn't, he, <laughs> he, he's, not a, he's not a very influential figure in the story. Wait, he's got PowerPoint. Yeah. And, and his... And in, and, and, is self help books. Yes. Inspirational thing speaker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although I would argue he's probably more useful than was it Heimdall? <laughs> <laughs> Who just spies on people and, and takes selfies. Yeah, but they they so one of the things they have to go and find, right, is the mead. Eventually. Uh, Kavasir's like, mead, yeah. Yeah. So they come to the, they come to the realization, like at first they're like, well, we're not quite sure how we're going to do this. We're not quite sure what's going to happen, but let's get on the boat. They, they were given a boat by, by Magnus's father, um, who is Frey, the god of summer and peace and what have you. And so, of course, it's a giant yellow boat. Um, I think 
the big banana. Yeah, they call it the big banana, and so they they set they basically set sail with the idea of like, okay, I guess let's let's just start going to where we need to go, and we'll figure out what we're going to do and how to stop them later because we're running out of time. And doesn't yeah, it fold up into napkin? Oh. Yeah, uh, uh, napkin or like a, a um like a handkerchief. And Eric, yeah. did you say it worked last time? Yeah, it worked last time for them just figuring out well, as they go along. So, and, and 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 that's another thing that oftentimes is the case uh, in these kinds of stories, right? Like we yes. we know we got and honestly, it feels a little bit D and D ish to me as well. Like sometimes, like you know, you got to go deal with a thing, so you just go and figure it out on the way, right? Yeah. Uh, because almost certainly the way you know D and D adventures and and Rick Riordan books are set up is that along the way, adventures will be had that will just happen to provide you with the solutions to, to your problems, right? So uh, maybe Odin was playing Dungeon Master the whole time and setting up the pieces and what have you. Get um, the right, go get the MacGuffin. Well, and so, yeah, so they, they headed to from Boston to England. Um and I guess there was, the, for those people who enjoy the other Rick Ryden books, there was this nice opening scene of Percy Jackson um, and Annabelle, Annabelle? Annabeth. Annabeth were there, uh, and Percy was trying to train Magnus because they knew they were doing a sea voyage, and he needed to, he's, he's the uh, the son of a sea god, so he was there to sort of help him, train him, get him ready, um, which didn't really seem to help at all <laughs> like uh percy's training was like well that was nice but uh i'm not getting it and it turns out it didn't really matter that much um there was a scene right at the end where um magnus was plunging into the ocean and you just sort of that whole opening with percy was just a setup for that joke at the end where magnus is falling into the water and remembers to to clench his butt or whatever it was right <laughs> so Plus, we got the scene with uh, Jack flirting with Reptide. The, the, the sword, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So they started off just on their way, and they knew it was there was potential for trouble because they had pissed off a, a sea god in a previous book. Um, and so they didn't end up running into that sea god, but they did run into that sea god's. Um, husband and daughters who like swallowed them up in the waves and took them to their feast hall mead hall i suppose is probably better because that, that was the giant that made the mead wasn't it but the, they captured them because they were talking about mead and right. thought that the dad would be interested yeah. so yeah that makes sense so and so they, yeah Oh, go ahead. And they said that that it's okay. They they can get guest privileges as long as nobody is Magnus Chase. Right, right, yeah. Because because the idea of guest rights comes up a lot. Um, whenever they end up with giants or whatever, there's a, the, always this idea of like, well, we can be protected if we if we claim guest rights, right? It, it feels a little bit. Um, I don't know. Is that there's is, is am I wrong that that's sort of a, a a part of like fey mythology a lot as well? The idea of of guest rights and that kind of thing. 
Fey, uh, Arturian legends also mm. has the honor of hospitality mm-hmm. and all that. So. So. So yeah. So well, and it turns out that whole that whole scene. Um, other than providing threat and dealing with this previous threat of Ron, was it Ron or Ran, the the sea goddess that threatened him, um, dealing with that, um, the it seems like the real crux of that whole scene was that's where they found out about the flighting that. Um, Loki could theoretically be defeated in a flighting instead of fighting him. You could basically have a, a war of insults um, and defeat him that way. But Loki is, of course, the most eloquent insulter that has ever been. And so the only possible way you could do that is to get yourself Kavasir's Mead. Um, this mead that is the blood of... A, was it a blood? the blood of a god who was like... The living pact between the was it the giants and the Aesir? Uh, Am I remembering that right? It was basically yeah, the Norses got spit and came out of Casimir. Yeah. So. And so yeah, I'm just trying to remember that the Kavasir was like the the living embodiment of this peace treaty between the Aesir and somebody they were warring with. I can't remember if it was the giants or the. Vanir or whoever, you know they're a, they're Viking folks. They they war with people. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that was really the the main point of that. But that's where they also met um, Magnus's grandfather, who helped them escape. Uh, and and, and th- it was through him that they figured out that they've been working way too hard because they've been rowing this boat across the ocean. And, th- and he was the one that told them, you know, you don't have to do that. You can just tell the boat where you want to go and it'll sail itself there. <laughs> because they didn't come with any instructions. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which also kind of feels like a fun, like, th- these are the kinds of things that I, I would enjoy throwing at a D&D party, right? Because, uh, because especially because, like, I think about adventures that I've run, like out of the abyss or whatever, where there's a lot of travel. And after a certain point in these adventures, like the travel stops being a fun part of the game, and I just want to get them where they need to be without having to run the travel part. Right? This feels like the DM has reached that point in the adventure where, okay, we don't need to deal with how you sailed across the ocean anymore. Let me reveal to you that you can just tell the boat to take you there, and it takes you there. <laughs> right. Yeah, they learned that, and then they also, um, the grandfather would point at them in the direction of an ex-estranged wife. Is that correct? Well, me- yeah, I mentioned that he has a, yeah, ex-estranged. I don't know that they ever, like, formally divorced or anything, but they were I don't married. know how that works in Godland. Right. Well, I mean, and and that actually brings up an interesting thought. Like, clearly, Norse mythology is such that traditional ideas of marriage are not necessarily the norm amongst the gods, right? The idea that um, that they were married, but 
just sort of never hung out together and and it's been thousands of years and i guess they're not really married anymore um is is a thing but then there's also like odin has was it multi several wives and but that also doesn't like but also all of the dwarves or many of the dwarves are the children of uh freya and that was just not a big deal um so so yeah the the uh one might say that Norse mythology paint, or at least this depiction of Norse mythology paints um, the 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 mystical world as as being very um, hippieish, free love, you know, sort of uh, approach to, to relationships. Well, any mythology, if you look at mythology, mm. relationships are very complex in the web. If you look at family trees and among the gods for different various types, you're not looking at a tree, you're looking at more of a web. <laughs> sure, but but like Hera would get pissed about it. The Norse gods are like, yeah, whatever, no big deal. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> that feels like a difference to me. <laughs> I don't know Greek mythology, I guess, that well to be able to, uh, to say whether Hera's approach or at least in those stories where Hera gets upset about it is is the norm or not but uh so yeah so and the uh the grandfather who's we keep just calling the grandfather i think his name was miordi does that sound right Nord. that was nord yeah n-j-o-r-d oh okay so that's how it's spelled well i listened to it so i don't know how it's spelled <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so okay, so um, who ends up being like an interesting interjection of exposition, gives them some information, and also then we get to hear about his beautiful feet, because apparently he has incredibly beautiful feet, which is how he ended up married to this frost giantess, because she wanted to, she wanted to marry Balder, uh, but. For whatever reason, I think it was Odin made her choose based off of the feet. Look at the feet of the Aesir and you can marry whichever one you want, but you can only look at their feet to determine who you want to marry. Yeah. And so she did not pick Valder, who is the most beautiful of all the gods. Apparently not enough beautiful feet. Except, except for when it comes to feet. Um, yeah, and so then they go to – at that point they go to England – and I'm trying to remember why they needed to go to England. I know they lost. They lost. Uh, they um, Blitz and Hearth left at that point because they needed to find a whetstone. They don't know why they needed the whetstone, but they were explicitly told you're going to need a whetstone. Yeah. Right? The DM. Again. The DM. Right. A different whetstone. The DM drops uh, a, a, a random prophecy on them. A, a vision that said you need this MacGuffin. So. Uh, in order to get rid of these two characters, we're going to have them go find it, not retrieve it. They're just going to go find it, which seems a little bit silly because they found it at one of their dad's house. Like, it, <laughs> you know, uh, it wasn't it didn't come off like it was that hard of a hunt. But I think uh, they needed to get those two characters had had a vacation planned and they couldn't make it to a few sessions. And so they found a way to sort of remove them from the game, right? Yeah. And the DM totally took the Gollum line 
of uh, story to to present the next challenge. Which the, eventually the for the 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 stone with the dad. Oh, the yeah. dad is basically turned into Gollum. It's basically turned into Gollum. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I can't remember if they got to England before that, or I think it was after that. I think they went to England first, and then they went. Yeah. Because, because, yeah, because Blitz and Hearth weren't in England for that challenge. I can't, I still can't remember why. Like there was a giant. Oh, oh, because the giant knew where Cavassier's Mead was. That's what it was. <laughs> So they needed to go. They they knew there was this giant in this English town that knew where Cavassier's Mead was, um, and so they needed to go talk to the giant to find that out. And the giant basically told them, uh, "I will tell you, but you have to beat me in a fight to the death first. Which seemed a little strange to me because if you're fighting to the death, how are you going to tell them what? <laughs> how are they going to deliver the prize, right? Yeah, and that's when we learn about Alex's yeah. history, right? Yeah, we get Alex's sort of history, her background, her his their background at that point, um, and particularly that um, Alex's grandfather had this special connection with clay, and found it to be a spiritual practice in addition to just making pretty things that people like to buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alex's father was more on the business end of things and Alex took after the grandfather Uh, and so Alex has part of the uh, challenge it's a dual challenge there's the fight with the giant itself and then the giant was also going to create basically a a creature or a a second made from clay and the seconds would then fight. Right. So, so you fight the well, one of them, and it was it, we. That's also where we got the backstory for TJ uh, Thomas Jefferson Jr. Uh, and so TJ had to fight the giant one on one, and then the clay golems that they created that night also then had to fight one on one. And Alex made one very much in the tradition of the was it the Aztec. I want to say that was her their heritage um, with the dual faced um, clay statue and pottery barn that they named pottery barn. Yes. Uh, and yeah, and and so so I I liked one of the things I didn't like as much in the first two books was that there were all of these what seemed to be interesting side characters, particularly the 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 other in Harriar from his floor in Hotel Valhalla, that were kind of like introduced but never really like fleshed out as full-fledged characters. Um, all of them were there for the entirety of the quest this time. All of them sort of had, each one had like, a moment, uh, a, a chapter, a, a bit of story, a scene where where they where we got a little bit of the backstory for each one of them at this point. Uh, and this was TJ and Alex's moment where we got their backstory. And TJ's big story was that it was the Civil War that he was a soldier in, right? Right. Um, and the he had been kind of felt called out by someone 
on the southern side, you had said some stuff in part because mm-hmm. TJ is black. Um, and they ended up, he ended up taking that guy out who also became an Inhari, right? Inhari. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it caused this huge big fight uh, as part of the war. Um, but that is the moment that they both went to Valhalla. Right. But he's the he's the son of, was it Tyr? And part of being the a child of Tyr is that when, when challenged, he had to accept. Uh, yeah. He could not turn it down. In fact, I, I not only, um, I remember specifically that he was part of the 54th Massachusetts Regiment. Um, which is the regiment that is depicted in the movie Glory, which I've watched many times. Um, so that stuck out to me that he was part of part of that regiment. It was the the first, um, was it all uh, all black unit, other than like those that were like conscripted that weren't really trained soldiers um, during the war. So. So yeah, that was that was his story, and then we got Alex's story, and that's also, I don't know if it was around then. Well, I think by the end of the second book, I had a pretty strong inclination that there was a potential relationship between Magnus and Alex at that point, yeah. uh, and I think it was at this point that that was really like solidified for me right that relationship between the two of them um was made real like i don't think he had any idea that that's where it was going but i had a pretty strong uh sense that that that's what was where this was going to end up at the end um the other thing that i guess is becoming more and more uh important is the fact that it is ramadan oh yes Uh, during this story and so uh, Sam uh, has to fast both food and water during the days Mm -hmm. uh, do do her prayers and also can eat a lot at night Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and there was there was concern at one point because Alex was teaching Sam like how to to resist the call of Loki because in the previous book Loki like ordered Sam to do stuff and Sam couldn't stop herself from doing it as a, as a child of Loki. Um, But Alex was. And so Alex was teaching Sam to do that. And there was concern that like, are you going to be weaker from the fasting during Ramadan? Is it going to make it harder for you to resist Loki? And I think like they, they didn't explicitly state this or not, but the way it was depicted um, the fasting during Ramadan I would say was shown as making Sam more resolute, more, you know, in, in, increased her willpower, you know, as a practice of discipline and made her more capable of resisting Loki. Basically, it's her fate that right. she had powering and fighting off the resistance resist of an inner god. So. I think it's fair to talk about here, like, in terms of, I have a few friends who are Muslim and they often talk about how at the beginning of Ramadan, like it's sometimes a lot harder because you're just starting to again deal with not with Mm -hmm. fasting during the day. Uh, But near the end, it's often something that is a lot easier um, Mm -hmm. for them. 
Yeah, that's so, it. Yeah, I don't, it's, it's interesting that he, he being the author, um, very he, he was very clearly I think in this series trying to bring in a, a more diverse cast of characters um, than I recall there being in the Percy Jackson series anyway. Um, despite the fact that it's Norse based, right there, there he he did the research to figure out why why it makes sense for there to be a Muslim in the group um, tied up into all of this, um, you know, and then we have TJ and, um, and then we have um, all sorts of interesting um, depictions of, of identity, gender, sexuality, uh, and that kind of stuff in the, in the story as well. Uh, so they defeat the giant in England. They defeat the ugly clay golem with their beautiful pottery barn um, as well. Um, I enjoyed the the depiction in this story of how all this crazy mystical stuff happens and, and nobody notices. Like there is a giant and two golems fighting a civil war soldier in the middle of the town square uh the giant explodes when it dies and yet the people don't really notice that that was all going on right there there must have been some sort of gas explosion or something right but they they kind of actually talk it over at the beginning they set the they established the ground rules a little bit at the beginning in the conversation with percy jackson um because you know, uh, the the Norse folks are like, oh, yeah, we call it this and this is how it works and whatever. And Percy and Annabeth are like, oh, we we think of it like this and call it this thing uh, in the Greek and Roman uh, side of, of the mythological mystical world or whatever. Right. Um, so I found that was interesting because I don't remember them really addressing that in the first two books um, of this series. I think they addressed it in the sound like the Percy Jackson series and whatever, but I don't think they had addressed it explicitly. Um, but I, I found it interesting that not only did they address it, but then it came up several times um, as things were going on that people should have noticed that, you know, <laughs> so I would, you know, there was these moments where Magnus was, was like, huh, I wonder what all the people saw when that building was picked up and thrown across the, the battlefield or whatever, you know? Uh, so they found out where Cavassier's meat is. It is being held by this other giant who who made a deal with it with what was it? Some dwarves made a, a trade with some dwarves or whatever. Got the last remaining bit of Cavassier's mead uh, and had it hold up in this one spot. Uh, and in order to find it, you need to go to the is it Norwegian city of Flam, yeah, Norway, uh, and take the train north. And, and you can't miss it. Um, and so they head off that way, but that's when Blitz and Hearth come back and steal Magnus away to go get the whetstone because it turns out the whetstone, because apparently all magical whetstones are in the possession of Hearth's father, who was a greedy big jerk that we met in the last book, who took the magical cursed ring in the last book 
And that ring has now turned him into a ring dragon who is hoarding all of his wealth and and very much turned into a Gollum Smeagol situation where he talks to himself about himself and but I'm hungry or I'm thirsty, let me go down to the river. No, I have to you have to stay here and, and guard the, the treasure. Somebody all your neighbors want to come and take it. That's just what they would want you to do, so they could get sneak in. Right. Exactly. Uh, and so they concoct some sort of plan because Hearth has to make the difficult decision that, you know, my father is gone. He's this evil dragon now. We have to kill him. And so the and, but the only thing we have that could possibly um, get through the defenses of this dragon is Jack, Magnus's sword. Um, but only if you strike it in the belly. And if you don't hit it, kill it the first time... Um, you'll, you're not going to get your chance. So you can only really stab it once, but it's blood is acid and they crawl on their belly. So you can, they never expose their, their weak underside. Um, so this is the challenge. All right, PCs, figure out how you're going to kill this monster, right? Excuse me, Mr. Ring Rat Dragon, sir. Will you please just turn on your back? Yeah. <laughs> Let me see that belly. You belly, want scratches, belly, rub, belly scratches. There you go. <laughs> Uh, so, so Magnus hides in a tunnel under the ground, um, but where there's not much ground between him and the surface, um, they coax the, the father dragon out and so that Magnus can time it just right to stab up through the ground and then get out of there really fast so that he's not sprayed with the acidic blood. Yeah, they use his deceased brother to lure out, uh... Yeah, it yeah. wasn't just any lore. No, it was it was um, Hearth's deceased brother, uh, and Hearth also regained the the rune stone that was missing from his set of runes that was left at the the place where his brother died. Um, so all in all, like I felt like I don't know, I felt like the Hearth's story arc was on one hand like heart-wrenching and on the other hand like i don't know it it didn't feel like it had the oomph that it should have for all the stuff that happened you know because like they were there like the the rune was missing right there they were told and and hearth admitted like i'm gonna have to come back and get this again someday but you know what let's just continue on with our quest and i'll work at half power i guess i'll get it later right uh, and then he got it and, and the brother was kind of there, popped in, popped back out, was only there for just a quick scene, um, even though it seemed like a really big deal. Um, so anyway, um, it happened and, I, and, it, and it had some oomph, but I felt like it should have had more given how tough that would have been. Also, there was the whole thing about the sign that said, like, if you enter, you'll die, you're like you'll be killed. Yeah. That, well, I think then, the local police put it on, put that on. Right, yeah. But they like they describe the sign and say that, and then no local police. I was waiting for the local police to show back up oh, again. See, see, I figured that was the – because from the way they described the interactions with the police, because that's what took them so long to find the whetstone. They found it right away, and then they got arrested. Right. Um, I figured that that was sort of the local police's way of just not dealing with the problem. Like they, they didn't have any intention of, of – enforcing that that edict or whatever it was just their way of like oh yeah you're right there's something dangerous there we'll put up a keep out sign you know high voltage stay away but we're not gonna go check on it like this is not our problem (laughs) so 
Um, and and um, Hearth went, then went through the process of cutting out the heart of his father slash the dragon. He was real torn about whether or not to consume the heart because apparently that comes with it like um is it the memories you lo- you learn the memories of the creature the, the dragon uh when you eat its heart and he figured there was a lot of sort of personal family history there that could be carried on um but at the same time his father was horrible and he didn't necessarily want dad in his head right um but but magnus accidentally dropped the heart into the fire it was destroyed but in the process tasted some of the blood and didn't get any memories, but gained the ability to hear animals talk. Especially birds. I guess it was, wasn't it? Was it always birds? I thought it could be more than birds. Uh, yeah, there were but few, I don't know for sure. There were a few, because wasn't there a thing with goats when they were in Norway, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, there was. There was a goat talking because my son pointed out that now all goats are like Thor's goats that can talk. Oh, uh, yeah. So it was I think Otis. Otis, yeah. So so yeah. Now he can just talk to animals, um, and that's also felt like a weird thing to add to the character this late into the story. Um, I don't know. It felt like that could have just been a thing that he could do as a son of Frey. But I guess the character leveled up at that point after killing the dragon, and they needed to explain why he gained this new class ability. Took a level in Druid, and this is how you know this is how they explained yeah. it. And it's not like the, the talking to animals thing didn't come up. Um, because it did come up later on when they were fleeing with Kavasir's mead. But so anyway, so they got the whetstone. They returned all that treasure to the dwarf and the ring, the cursed ring to the dwarf that they took it from. Or at least they threw it in the pond. They didn't actually know if that dwarf was still there, right? They just threw it in the pond where that dwarf had previously been shapeshifted into a trout or whatever and hiding. So not my problem now. Right. I guess so, <laughs> right? That's a weird as I think about it, like there could be a whole short story based off of Somebody wandered along this pond a hundred years later and found a cursed ring with a bunch of treasure. And, you know, isn't, isn't, isn't that how the Lord of the Rings started way back when, when Smeagol found the ring in the river, right? Somebody, somebody's found a cursed ring and said, this is not my problem and threw it in the water. <laughs> Maybe it's the beginning of that story. Maybe it somehow. is. Um, so, yeah. So then they get back to the rest of the crew and they are sailing into Flom, which I like the depiction of uh, the description of Flom. I found really, um, really interesting. This, this, the the river with the steep cliff sides, and then the city sort of built into the side of the mountains, and and what have you, uh, and the train going through it. And I'm like, that sounds really neat. I wonder if it's real. And so I looked it up and it it's a real place. It's an actual tourist attraction. It, the pictures looked kind of like that. I looked it up on my phone while I was listening to it with my son in the carpool line. And so we were looking at pictures of Flom while we were listening to the, the that part of the book talking about Flom. Uh, and that's where we got a little bit of the story of, of half-born Gunderson, uh, who was originally a Viking from Flom. 
In fact, arguably, he's the only one of the entire group that was at one time a Viking. That it really has that Norse background. I guess you could. I guess maybe Magnus could have some Norse background. We don't really know, but with a name like Magnus, I just sort of assumed. Is it kind of interesting at this point? Because we're talking about people having Norse backgrounds or not, mm-hmm. like that whole you were talking about earlier, the inclusivity and the diversity in this mm-hmm. versus um, a, a mythology or a story base that has been sometimes, like particularly runes, have been used by white supremacists. Mm. And that juxtaposition is kind of interesting. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you... I mean, I suppose you could tell a story of Norse based in North, Norse mythology without discussion of runes. But it, I mean, runes are one of the things that people know about Norse mythology, right? So, right, um, yeah. So I don't know how you just completely avoid it, but I think, yeah, I think I, you know, um, it is, it is meaningful, I guess, that they incorporate the use of runes. They don't shy away from that while also describing one of the more diverse sort of groups, casts of, of characters, uh, at least in Eric Riordan book. Um, so, yeah, no, I hadn't thought of that. That's that's interesting. So in Flom, that, Flom was weird. They started, they... they they split the party, which, you know, is always tricky, but they do it all the time in this group, right? They're constantly splitting the party. It's like they've got a, a party of 10 players in their D&D group, but only four or five of them can make it to any given session. Um, and so they, they split the party to search Flom to figure out what's going on or what they where to go next for Kavasir's Mead. And um, um, what's her name? Was it? Madison, the redheaded interior. Mallory, Mallory. That sounds right. Uh, in any case, she saw the figure in Flom that, like, doing fortune tellings on the street or something. That was the figure. We we get her backstory, right? She was she was in Ireland during the 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 troubles. Um, she got in with a group that was fighting for Irish independence and set a bomb on what was supposed to be an empty school bus. Um, and somebody that she assumed was Loki gave her these magic daggers and says, go disarm that bomb. Children are going to die. She did, but it blew up and she died. And that's how she became an Harrier and ended up in Valhalla. Um, and so she saw that figure again that she had always thought was Loki and it turned out wasn't Loki. Uh, it was actually, it was, well, it was, it was Frigg, right? It was Frigg who it turns out is Mallory's mother, but she didn't know that this whole time either, which, which felt or seemed weird to me because when Magnus showed up in Valhalla and they had that first like dinner or whatever with all the new in didn't, isn't that when they announced who his father was to him? Am I remembering that wrong? That that's how when he so. found out that his father was was Frey. Yeah, I think they always do it. You know, son yeah. of 
Right. So how did Mallory how how did Mallory not know that her mother was Frigg? So that was weird. But the other thing that was weird to me was that like they followed her onto the train. They followed Frigg onto the train, had this conversation and this this uh, exposition moment with Frigg uh, on the train. And then when they got all the information they needed, they just kind of stayed on the train and continued that part of the quest, right? They jumped off the train and they followed the path to where um, the, the mead was going to be found. And they made it a point back in England to highlight that certain characters were carrying cell phones for just this kind of occasion. Like the rest of the group was theoretically wandering all over Flom trying to figure out what to do. Well, these was it three or four of them were off actually doing the quest. Why couldn't they have sent a quick text message and said, Hey, we're on the trail. Come meet us here. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. And, but the story, that reception. <laughs> right. And well, and the story just kind of doesn't even describe it, hand waves it away. Um, yeah. You know, doesn't deal with it at all. It's just sort of, we're going to run off. We're going to do this thing and we'll meet back at the boat. And then they just meet back at the boat and everybody's there waiting for them. Right. Um, they, they get to the, the, they find the spot where the meat is. Um, it's in this sort of vault, this cave, whatever that's sealed up. And there's these thralls, these slaves, that the giants keep, um, that are, what is it? They're constantly having, like, they can't take a break until they've harvested all the wheat, but they can't harvest the wheat because the sickles they have are all always dull and the wheat is super strong. Uh, and so they use the whetstone to sharpen the blades so they can finally take a break and, and tell them how to get into the, get, get into the vault or whatever. Um, but then they're all like, oh, but we, you know, we can't let you do that. We're going to have to kill you now. Um, but there was this whole thing about how you can't, like, they couldn't kill the thralls. And they, it was kind of, there was this moral thing of, like, not only can we probably not kill them, but, like, we shouldn't. They're slaves. They're not here of their own volition. What do we do? Um, and so they use the whetstone as as a, a, a temptation or whatever to get them to fight over it. And, and then they all kill each other. Yeah. Instead of doing anything, instead of them killing themselves, it's the slaves that right. murder themselves and kill themselves fighting over this. Well, and... and and this becomes a, a theme to a degree as well. Like um, Magnus is, you know, an Inheriar, one of the warriors of Ragnarok, but he's also the son of the of a god of peace. Um, and 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 so they oftentimes find a way to for Magnus to be able to defeat the enemy without having to fight. Right. Even when yeah. Magnus does fight, he doesn't fight. He throws Jack in the air and says, "Hey, Jack, go kill him." Yeah. And then he just gets tired later. Right. Well, and there was—I yeah. mean, there was one time, and I'm jumping to the end a little bit, but there was one time towards the end where he—he he did start to fight. Like Jack was off fighting, and he was fighting separately or whatever. But it didn't last long, and and he didn't come off as that much of a fighter. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> um, it's very much not. 
Percy Jackson, right? Percy Jackson is the great hero that goes out with the sword and slays the monsters and, and defeats the evil gods and whatever. Uh, Magnus is very much like, I'm going to throw myself into these fights and then totally not do any fighting because that's not my thing, which which is consistent with the, the son of a god of peace, right? Yeah. It's Magnus, Magnus, play, Magnus fights like I in video games how I play, where literally when I have a team, I let my team go fight. <laughs> A computer team go fight while I'm trying to figure out what else is happening and exploring the area. Right. So, <laughs> so they they defeat the thralls. They um, Mallory. This is when her her magic daggers come into place because it's the only blades thin enough to get into the door to to cram it open. There's a a, a giantess that's been trapped in there as punishment for letting Odin steal the mead for the first time. Um. And they make a deal. Yep. With, oh, was it? Go ahead. I was gonna say that gets that little bombshell gets dropped on them. That there's not even that much mead there oh. because one of the Norse gods already has his own stash of it. Right. Yeah. No. The, the, uh, Odin, uh, who sent them on this mission, already has yeah. all of this Kvasir's mead sitting in a, in a storehouse somewhere. Uh, and they they kind of mentioned this at the end again, not to skip too far ahead. But at the very end of the story, Odin mentions during the celebration party that, you know, oh, and you found Kvasir's mead and, and um, you know, you, you used up all the rest of it. Now the only Kvasir's mead that's still left out there is my my supply. And, and and Magnus is like, of course he has a whole bunch sitting around. And could he have just given it to us? Yes. Could I bring this up with him? Sure. But what's the point? Like, it's not going to get me anywhere. So. Yeah. It's like... It's all done. It's right. water under the bridge. We're just finished all this well, thing. And it's very much the there's also very much I think the the like they needed to go through what they went through to be ready to do what they did at the end to win, right? Yeah. Um So and and and, and, and it's it's a D and D adventure, right? You needed to go through these side quests, otherwise you weren't gonna be high enough level to fight the boss at the end. So they did. Um, so yeah, so they they got the mead by making this deal with the giantess, and then the giantess re- said, "Well, that was that was nice, thank you, and um, I guess you're gonna die now because there's basically an alarm spell on the vault, and as soon as you open the doors, uh, the giant who owns it knew about it, and he's on his way, and there's these giant eagles, and so Magnus fights one of the giants with the help of some crows that he can talk to. This is where the talking to animals thing." Like the one time it became uh, particularly important, um, and then the rest of them ran off to back to the boat to Flom, uh, where uh, Halfborn Gunderson defeated the giant because that giant had the audacity to insult his hometown of Flom. Also importantly, isn't this how they don't they get back to the boat in the walnut? Uh, one of them is in the walnut. Uh, Sam yeah. Sam shapeshifts into into a bird or whatever and carries uh, Mallory, uh, who is in the walnut. Because uh, yeah, we didn't even talk about the walnut. They were given yeah. a, they were given a walnut. Who gave them the walnut? Was that Frig? Frig? Yeah, Frig gave them the walnut. Frig gave the walnut as to, to to be able to trap uh, Loki. During after the flighting, which which actually comes up a few times, uh, you know, from that point they 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 all get back together on the boat and they fly off to or they sail off to 
the the crossroads between was it Niflheim and and I don't know my my nine realms well enough. It was the crossroads between two different uh, nine of the nine worlds, uh, which is where Loki's boat is, and that's where they ran into Njord's estranged or ex wife, the frost giantess. Uh, and there, and that's when the the walnut comes up there in a fun and interesting way. Like, well, I mean, even if you did survive, and even if you got to Loki, and even if you defeated him in the flighting, um, it's not like you can recapture him. What are you going to do? It's like, oh, we have a walnut. She's like, oh, okay, never mind. You're good then. Like, as if that made sense, right? <laughs> and not so powerful. She specifically wants to make clear that she does not want to get back with the grandfather. Right. <laughs> not interested in, in getting back together with Njord, although he he asks them to sort of take the temperature of the, the relationship. Was there a chance that she would take him back? Whatever. Which, which is frosty. Yeah, you could say that, right? Um <laughs> So then she gives them magic skis so they can ski down her mountain to where Loki is. Um, everybody starts a big fight except for Alex, um, Magnus, and was it Sam? Yeah, I think it was Sam that was with them. Um, and they, but they have one of Hearth's runes the uh, that they. They use and it turns them invisible so they can sneak onto the boat uh, where they are then discovered and a fight begins and they challenge Loki to the flighting and Loki's like, no, I'm just going to kill you. And then the giant allies are like, uh, no, you were properly challenged. You can't just say no. Uh, and so Loki starts insulting Magnus and he starts shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, literally physically shrinking. Uh, away and then Magnus remembers that his friends are the key to his victory. Friendship is magic. Friendship is magic. Friendship is magic. And so he starts instead of insulting, Lo- trying to use Ka- the the eloquence of Kavasir's mead to insult Loki. He he instead uses this eloquence to to talk up his friends and all of these people are here and these they've done wonderful things and they're loyal and they're fantastic and you don't have anybody. Nobody is loyal to Loki. And Loki's like, yeah, but like, I've still got my wife. She's loyal to me. And then he turned and saw that she had left. Um, She was done with his BS. Um, And so he was truly alone. And he, he, Loki shrunk to, uh, you know, two inches high. And that's when they captured him in the walnut. Um, And then proceeded to be uh, attacked by all the giants. And so then they... Uh, he clenched his butt, and they jumped in the water, and they escaped on water horses. As one does. As one does. And then there were there was parties with gods, and they opened uh, basically a halfway house or whatever out of his uncle's mansion in Boston. Uh, and and Magnus and Alex became an official couple. And I know you said there was parties with gods, but there was one other thing too, right? Okay. Was that the trial of Loki, as it was? I mean, it was only like probably. Did they have a trial? I don't remember a trial. They had to talk about. It wasn't really a trial. It was what are we gonna do about this situation? Yeah, because there was there was like because Thor was like 
he's in the walnut. Let's just smash it, kill him, and get and, and be done with it. But as is true to to Norse mythology, you cannot stop Ragnarok. Loki has to survive. He has to be imprisoned in the exact way that he was previously imprisoned, because it has already been foretold that Ragnarok will happen, and it will happen. And Loki's escape from that prison is part of how it will happen. Uh, we didn't stop the end of the world here. We just delayed it. And that's sort of a theme in, in Norse mythology. Like Ragnarok is going to happen. It is inevitable. They're, they've never fought to stop the end of the world. They've just constantly fighting to, to make it not happen so soon. Right. right. And that's one of the key things. Because I know we've called Loki the bad guy a few times. And he fits that role, but he's not necessarily a bad guy. It's just, as uh, Magnus talks about uh, a few times, a lot of people would like a little more time to live their lives, like Samira being able to marry. And so we just need to postpone Ragnarok. Mm -hmm. But wanting to start Ragnarok isn't necessarily evil either. I mean, no. I, I don't know that I'm willing to say that Loki isn't necessarily a bad guy for wanting to start Ragnarok. I am willing to probably say that he is definitely a bad guy for, for other reasons, though. Uh, uh, he has some fairly vile um, personality traits and qualities. Um, it's not like he's just innocently like, I'm just playing my role. Nah, he's kind of a big jerk face. So I'm, willing, I'm still willing to call him a bad guy, but... Yeah, I know, but almost all of them are big jerk faces. Oh no, that's true, and, and they kind of make that point as well in that in those final scenes in those final chapters. They kind of make the point like all of the gods are kind of giant jerk faces, and Loki's playing his role, and they're playing their role, and they don't know how to do anything except play their their role, um, in in you know the tapestry of fate or what have you. Um, there was also a moment. I don't, remember when it was but there was a discussion with some giants at one point that pointed out that like the Aesir the Vanir the giants there's not really any different they're they're, they're all right. the, the same thing they just sort of form different groups over the years different factions different ideologies yeah. that they're just fighting among themselves but yeah they could get along but they chose not well their ideologies makes them go against each other. Well, or so. or or their fate, right? Just like Ragnarok, yeah. they they all have their roles to play, and they don't know how to do anything but play those roles. They are very much um, sort of enslaved to their to their fate and to their 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 role, right? Yeah. And I've and I've some I've I've sometimes uh, brought that concept into my D and D games as well, like. The gods have their portfolios and, and they have their domains and they function within those and they play their roles and they don't really like unlike the mortals who can sort of, you know, the players can sort of make their own way and, and determine their own fate. The gods are incapable of doing that with a few possible exceptions of gods who used to be mortals, you know, and so maybe they've got some freedom or not. So I've, I've definitely played with that idea in, in campaigns before. It's a concept of also of more power you have, less choice you have of how to apply that power. And the the whole idea of Norse Ragnarok, I feel like is is more poignant than maybe I've given given it credit for in my mind in the past. Because like 
isn't that true of everybody always at all times? Like, we're all going to die. The earth is of someday going to be swallowed up by the sun. Like, this whole thing, this whole experiment that is that is life on earth uh, is doomed. And it, there's no stopping it. There's absolutely nothing that can be done about it. We're all, you know, uh, we're all inevitably headed towards that same end. But that doesn't mean that we just sort of shrug and give up and, and say, okay, then I guess now's the time, right? We, we're all sort of constantly struggling to make the most of the time that we have and to make and to get ourselves the most time that we can. Pushing, making sure that we can make a life for ourselves, even though, yeah, it's going to end in a few billion years for all humanity. But... And, and probably much sooner for most of us. Um, yeah. And, and, and I don't know, unless somebody has any particularly good... Uh, last thoughts. I, I feel like that's nice and poignant to, to wrap up our conversation on, right? We're all going to die, but let's make the most of it. Well, can we just say the people making most of it are Alex and Magnus with their house to help Heck the yeah. homeless youth of Boston? Heck yeah. Uh, and and, and I, I like that they didn't um, they didn't shy away from that moment because um, Alex is gender fluid and, and um, Magnus has some magical ability to always know whether Alex is male or female at any given moment. And this is why I would say he and then she and then they, because Alex doesn't really use the they pronoun. Um, but in any given conversation, I don't know whether to re- refer to them as, as he or she, right? Because well, um, you actually see it in the book because. Uh, since it's always from the viewpoint of Magnus, right. uh, Magnus knows instantly and thus the pronoun for Alex is written. Right. right, well, and the pronoun changes in the in the audio. I mean, you, you hear him um, switch back and forth. But that, I like that they didn't shy away from that moment after the fight because the, the first time Alex and Magnus kissed, Alex was identified as female and then they the relationship kind of started in moments when Alex identified as female and then after it was all done and they were back in Valhalla uh, and they kissed again uh, Magnus had that conver- that mental conversation of but Alex is male now and I just kissed a dude and you know what I guess it doesn't matter because it's Alex right it's not about male or female it's about that this is the person that I'm into so and it I think he said he had to think about it a little bit about like to unpack it a little bit more mm-hmm. later or to process it more. Right. Um, but yeah, but it, it was a, a that was a nice moment um, in terms of thinking through that stuff. And also like the, we didn't really talk about it, but on, on the way to the frost, the last frost giants, the ex wife of the grandfather, mm-hmm. uh, like they were going through the extreme cold. Right. Right. And part of the way that they got there was through the Alex and uh, Magnus kind of like huddling together. Yeah, everybody paired up the, and conserved body heat by by huddling up together as they trudged across the cold. And he and and Alex were together, and that's what the first time they kissed because Alex is like, "Well, if we're gonna die, I don't want to die without having done this." Yeah, and I think going back to your thing about the pronouns, it is one of the difficult things because it can be difficult to remember which gender Alex is at a particular time in the book. So uh, talking about it later, it's sometimes hard to know which pronoun to use. Mm. All right, sorry. All right. Should we go ahead and wrap up then? 
Yeah, let's do that. Okay. All right, so we're going to go ahead and call that the end of the episode. Uh, it is time to say goodbye and say thanks to all of our patrons at patreon.com slash the Tome Show and anyone who otherwise, uh, anyone else who otherwise supports the, the show or adds to our community. And if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can call our biz line. It's 919-BizTome, B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. You can talk to me on Twitter at SarahDarkMagic or SarahDarkMagic.com. Jeff is at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. Eric is at Eric Mpack, uh, Eric with a C. And The Tome Show is at The Tome Show. You can find us on Facebook, Patreon, and Discord. Watch our stream of episode recordings at twitch.com slash tomeshow or watch the video after the fact on The Tome Show's YouTube channel. Show notes and other great shows are at thetomeshow.com. And it's twitch.tv, not .com, but yes, twitch.tv slash tomeshow. That's okay. Uh, uh, that is our thoughts on The Ship of the Dead. Up next in June, we will be reading uh, Dragons of Spring... Is it Dragon or Dragons? I forget. Dragons of Spring Dawning. Dragons of Spring Dawning uh, by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Um, because we are going to force Tracy to finish the, the Dragonlance trilogy. So there we are. Uh, until then, keep turning the page, Tomites. Oh, wow.